The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Today in our country, for this weekend, as we recognize our veterans, those with us, those who have gone before us, we want to remember them and thank them for their service. And for today's scripture reading, I would like to recognize another veteran, a man who was a veteran of God's army, a man who was chosen by God to lead his people into the promised land. And that man's name is Joshua. And I, today's scripture reading, I'd like to For those of you who would like to turn to Joshua chapter 23, and we're going to look at some words of Joshua in his older years, in his veteran years, as he uh, reflects back on the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, and how God, in his power and in his providence, kept his promise of leading them into the promised land. And Joshua addresses the elders and the people of Israel and encourages them with these words. So that's Joshua chapter 23, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I am allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, these, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. But be, but be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them, and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, But they shall be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your sides and a thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for great men of faith like Joshua. We thank you for the great men and women of faith uh, that we see in your word. And We look at their lives and we recognize that in the beginning they were a lot like us, really a 
were oh too familiar with them, is that they were just ordinary people. But God, you called them, and you set them apart to do mighty things. And Father, we thank you that uh, uh, because of the promises that you gave them and the word that you gave them, that they believed it in faith and that they trusted that you were a God who was all-powerful and could accomplish his will. And, Father, through that, you did wonderful works in and through their lives, as you also continue to do in many lives today. Father, we thank you that, uh, as Joshua did, as he reflected back on your goodness and your faithfulness and your sovereignty in his life and in his people's lives, that, Lord, we have those same promises. That, Father, that you uh, love us with an unfailing love. Father, that you have empowered us with an unfailing power. And, Father, that you have given us a hope that is an unfailing hope. And, Father, may we uh, all take time to reflect back on how you have worked in our lives individually. Father, how you have kept your promises. And, Father, how you have done great things, uh, even when we could not see uh, any good coming out of it, that, Father, that you did it for what was good and for your will. Father, continue to do that mighty work in and through the lives of your children and in this church that we call Grace on the Ashley. Father, we thank you for all who are gathered here today. And, Father, may we leave this place with the encouragement that you are a God who keeps his promises, that you are a God who remains faithful, and that, Father, if we continue to put our trust and hope and faith in you, Lord, you too can do mighty works through us. Father, again, we just ask that you speak through your faithful servant, Pastor Greg, as he gives your word today. And Lord, as Joshua said, uh, not one word has failed us, and that, he, and that you are a God who keeps his promises. So, Father, as your word goes out, Father, we pray that it will go out in power and that it will encourage us where we need encouragement, that it will convict us where we need conviction. But most of all, Father, we pray that it will bring uh, salvation to those who need salvation. Lord, thank you uh, for this time. And, Lord, may we honor you in all that we say and do. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's a great joy and a <clears throat> sort of exciting privilege to be able to launch into a new book this morning. I don't know if you're excited about it or not, but I sure am. One of my uh, sort of personality traits is uh, when it comes to uh, vacations, for me the most exciting part is the anticipation of the journey and the preparation for the journey. Oftentimes the vacation is actually a little bit of a letdown compared to the excitement of the preparing and the anticipating and the thinking about how it's going to go. This is one of the areas where my wife and I are, are, are opposite. Uh, she isn't interested too much in thinking about it until we're in the car and ready to pull out. And then, boom, it's exciting for her. For me, it's exciting all the way up until that point. And then it's just about doing it. And it's fun, too. But it's the anticipation of the journey. And it's the same for me uh, when we begin to look at a new journey through a new book in the Bible together as God's people. I've I looked towards James with great excitement and anticipation, and I hope you do as well. This morning, I just want to read to you the first verse of James chapter 1. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Greetings. Let's pray. Father, we, we find ourselves, Lord, on the precipice of a new and exciting adventure. Your Word is always an adventure for us because as we dive into it and we mine its depths, we find gems and jewels that, that enrich our souls, that, that transform us into the image of Your Son, that make us into people who glorify You and honor You in our lives. And we know, Lord, that this journey before us has, has before us riches untold, gems that You would seek for us to discover and to be amazed by, and to be challenged by, to be changed by. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless us this morning as we sort of set the table for the journey to come. May your word be powerful among us, we pray, for Christ's sake. 
Amen. We live in a, a world that is filled with counterfeits. For basically anything that is of any value in our world, there's a counterfeit. There's a, a knockoff. There's a, a fake, a fraud that is passed off as the real thing. I ran across an article uh, this past week that talks about the statistics related to uh, uh, money and fraud related to identity theft. 2017 survey on identity fraud found this. That in 2017, this was a 2017 survey, looking back to 2016, that $16 billion was stolen from 15.4 million U.S. consumers. Think about those numbers. Just last year, $16 billion from 15.4 million U.S. consumers stolen. That's up uh, from 15.3 billion the year before. The past six years, thieves, identity thieves, have stolen over $107 billion. You say, well, how do they do that? How do, how do they, how do they steal people's identities and then take their money? Well, 34% of that money comes from employment or tax-related fraud, or employment or employment tax-related fraud. Another 29, almost 30% is tax fraud. Another 32% is credit card fraud. Phone and utilities fraud is another 13%. Bank fraud, loan or lease fraud, government documents and benefits fraud. Billions of dollars that are stolen from innocent consumers, for the most part, simply because somebody is an identity thief. Well, what is it, how does an identity thief work? They, they assume someone else's identity and then pass themselves off as that person in order to steal their money. You see, it's a big fraud. It's a big counterfeit scheme where somebody pretends to be somebody they're not in order to gain an advantage for themselves. And it's getting worse and worse and worse in our culture. I read another article this week about um, fraudulent money being made in the United States. Did you know that over 60% of the fraudulent paper money that's in circulation right now in the United States of America is made on a home inkjet printer? That's amazing, isn't it? That you can actually make money on your inkjet printer and pass it off as the real thing. I read an article about one lady who took a bunch of $5 bills, collected $5 bills, soaked them in a degreaser, scrubbed them down to scrub off the ink, reprinted them on her HP inkjet printer into $50 bills. Every bill, that's a tenfold increase. That's one way to increase your wealth. But she got away with it for a long time. How does she get away with it? She got away with it because the, the, the counterfeits that she was printing looked remarkably like the real thing. So that when a, a, a merchant took the $50 bill, it just looked real. And they thought it was something of value, when in reality, it was worthless. The funniest article I ran across this week was about a man who was importing and exporting olives. Now, in order to understand the humor in this, you need to understand that there's one simple fact of life when it comes to olives. The black ones are worth more than the green ones. Fair enough? So this guy was importing green olives, and you'll never guess what he was doing. Oh, yeah. He was painting them black, repackaging, and selling them as black olives. You can only imagine the surprise. When somebody goes to bite into their salad and gets painted olives. But again, another example of someone who is pushing off something as a real deal when in reality it's something altogether different. It's fraud. It's counterfeit. It's fakery. And counterfeits are incredibly destructive. I mean, we just saw the monetary value of identity theft. But counterfeiting has destructive, destructive results. And counterfeiting has no less destructive results within the church, within God's church. 
You see, what happens in the body of Christ and has happened throughout the history of the church has been that within the body of Christ, within the, the sort of the, the family of true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are mixed the fraudulent, the fake, the artificial. The person who looks on the outside as though they just be- belong, like they mix in, like they are people who possess genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a faith that, that appears real on the surface. They're master counterfeiters. And it's no surprise because the Bible tells us that Satan is a master counterfeiter. That everything that God does originally, Satan provides a counterfeit. So it's no surprise that when it comes to saving faith and genuine belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Satan provides an alternative that's a counterfeit that looks an awful lot like the real thing on the surface. And Satan uses such counterfeits to destroy the church. The best way to destroy the effectiveness of a church is to dilute it with deceived people who believe that they're saved, but in reality they are not. The best way to destroy a human soul is to convince that person that they are a genuine believer when they are not. And so they live their entire lives believing one thing to be true, only to find in the end that they've been believing a lie. Jesus understood this clearly. And He gave very vivid warnings about this reality. Matthew chapter 13, you may remember in the midst of Jesus talking through some parables, He gives a parable of weeds in a field. Beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 13, Jesus put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and he went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then did it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Uh, Then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no, no. Lest in the gathering of the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned. And then gather the weed into my barn. It's a really terrifying story, Jesus tells. Because he looks out over the church. That's the illustration. And inside the body are, 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 are true wheat. Wheat that is grown because the, the true seed has been planted in the heart and it's grown up and borne fruit. The genuine real deal. But in the mix of that, an enemy has come in and sown fraudulent counterfeit seed that looks like the real thing until it starts to bear fruit and you realize the fruit is not the right fruit and it's the wrong thing. It's a, a fraud. Jesus gives a stern warning that when it all gets shaken out at the end of time, He separates the weeds from the wheat. And the weeds burn. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus paints the picture of the end of time. And He paints the picture that's going to be the reality for many. He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, that's the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, Jesus understood the reality of counterfeits. He understood the reality of frauds. He understood the game plan of the enemy for the destruction of the soul and for the destruction of the church. And right at the top of the playbook is fraud and counterfeit. The book of James is a book that is written to address that very issue. 
It is that issue that James is going to come at in a full frontal assault. And as we study this, it is going to be as though James is putting our lives under the microscope and he's going to be asking the question in our own hearts, are you real or are you counterfeit? Is what's planted inside of you true, genuine faith? Or are you just a fraud? This is a book that's going to do spiritual surgery on us. It's a book that will not allow us to hide behind pleasant platitudes and simple statements. It's a book that's not for the faint of heart. It's a book that will shake up the cliché Christian. If you're a fence writer about matters of faith, you'll hate James because he won't allow you to sit on the fence. He's going to force you to declare your allegiance. James is going to have one message that's loud and clear when it comes to our faith. Make it real or get out. That's James's message. And it's blunt and it's in your face and it's brutal. And the journey is going to, at times, be quite unpleasant for us if we take what James writes seriously. Who is this James? And what gives him the right to say such things to people like us? As soon as we read the first word of verse 1, we are immediately introduced to the first challenge of the book, which is simply determining which James wrote the book. James in Jesus' day, in the first century, was a a common name. And there were multiple Jameses around. There were multiple Jameses mentioned in the Bible, at least four, perhaps five. Just a, a quick review of who they are. There's James, the son of Zebedee. You remember him? John's brother. One of the two sons of thunder. One of the inner circle of, of Jesus' sort of confidants amongst the twelve. Peter, James, and John. Got to do lots of things that the rest of them did not get to do. He was certainly a prominent enough James to write such a letter as this letter that we see in the book of James. But sadly, that James was executed by Herod in A.D. 44, before the book was written. So he is not a a possibility as an author of this letter. That's found in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where it tells us that Herod kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. As far as I know, dead men can't write, so he didn't write this letter. It's not him. There's another James, is one of the original twelve, James the son of Alphaeus. Do you remember that name? If you were like me and you grew up in Sunday school in a church, then you learned a little song that had all the twelve disciples' names. Did you learn that? There was a vacation Bible school teacher that gave me five bucks for memorizing that. I remember to this day. It's amazing what money will do. Memorizing. I still know the song, so I guess it was an investment that was good. Um, James the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less. Um, We don't know anything about this guy other than his name and that he was one of the original 12. He was not very prominent. He wasn't prominent in the early history of the church. And there's another less prominent James, James the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, a different Judas, who's also mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned in the list of the original 12 as the father of, of, of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas also known as Thaddeus, if that's not confusing enough. But again, another James who's mentioned, but we know virtually nothing about that James. So those last two Jameses, we know nothing about. There's little evidence that they had any prominence in the early church. And so to write a book like this, uh, if you were one of them, you would have to give some other qualifications so people would know who you are. There's only two Jameses that could write a book like this and title it, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and everybody immediately know who it was. James, the son of Zebedee, who's dead, or the final James, James, the brother of Jesus. He's prominent enough to write this letter. He's prominent enough to write it without any further qualification. Everyone to whom he was writing clearly would have known exactly who he was. And the timeline of his life lines up with the timeline of the writing of this book. And so we believe that that's who wrote this letter. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of notes about this man because you need to understand who's writing in order to receive the message 
with the appropriate authority. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Well, contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine, which tells us about the perpetual virginity of Mary, that's not true, by the way. Mary and Joseph had other kids. Did you know that? They did have other kids, boys and girls. Matthew 13, verse 54 and following. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Brothers, he had sisters. James was one of the brothers. Of course, as we approach the Christmas holidays, we all know that Jesus' birth was completely unique, right? He was, he was the child who actually came from Mary's womb. But we, we know from the virgin birth that Joseph was not biologically the father of Jesus, that Jesus was, was born by a miracle of the Holy Spirit in Mary. And so we would then say that Jesus... In, in relationship to his other brothers and sisters, was a, a half-brother, a half-brother to the sisters and a half-brother to his brothers because they shared the same mother, but biologically not the same father. But even though Joseph wasn't his biological father, in every real sense that mattered, he was his actual father. He's the one who raised Jesus. As far as we know, the rest of Mary and Joseph's kids came the old-fashioned way. Well, beyond Jesus' half-brother, what else was he? He was a skeptic who didn't believe Jesus. That's important to know. He was a skeptic who did not believe Jesus for much of his life. Apparently, Jesus kept a pretty low profile in the home growing up. That's the best I can imagine, right? Because it seems that all of his brothers and sisters, really, for the most part, thought he was a lunatic when he started his ministry. And I wonder, you know, we know that Jesus was sinless, Surely they had to show up in some ways growing up. But apparently Jesus didn't make an issue of these things because it's clear that his brothers and sisters don't believe that he is who he says he is from the very beginning. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us this very clearly. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. This is while he's doing his ministry. Mark chapter 3 verse 20 and following Jesus is going about his ministry. And Mark tells us that when he went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat, and when his family heard this, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Translation, his mother and his brothers and his sisters, not his mother, his brothers and his sisters are going out after him and they're telling people, he's lost his mind. That's just Jesus. He's, he's gone off the end here. I mean, he's teaching things. He's teaching bizarre things to them. He's stirring people up. He's, he's engendering hostility out there in the world. And they don't believe him. They don't believe him. But at some point in his life, James comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's most likely when he saw the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 3 and following, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. So it seems that after the resurrection, that Jesus made a personal visit to his brother, James. After the resurrection. And it's my conviction that that's when James came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and came to believe in his brother as more than a brother, but as his Messiah. I'm sure the ministry of Jesus had some impact on James. I'm sure the crucifixion had some impact on James. But it was the resurrection, I believe, that put him right over the edge. And after that, we see James numbered among the believers. In the book of Acts, early on, James is numbered among the believers. Acts chapter 1, right at the very beginning, he's gathered with the other apostles and they're praying. 
And so James, the brother, who is the skeptical unbeliever, becomes a believer in his brother, the Lord Jesus. And then he emerges after that, really, as the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. We're not, again, told specifically how he came to this. Clement of Alexandria says that he was appointed by Peter and John. We don't know if that's true, but it's possible. But he becomes the leader of the early church, and we see this as we trek our way through Acts. We don't have time to, to sort of track that all through this morning. But I'll give you just a couple of uh, sort of snippets that we parachute into. After Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, we find that he goes to Jerusalem to, to uh, sort of team up with the apostles after a period of time. And he reflects on this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. He says this, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Interesting here that when Paul reflects on who James is, he calls him an apostle. Regardless, James clearly was a leader by that point in the early church in Jerusalem. We, we move forward in Acts a little bit to the Jerusalem Council, which happened in right about A.D. 49. Do you remember the Jerusalem Council, what's going on there? A big dispute arises in the Christian church, this, this newly formed Christian church. And you know what the big dispute is over? It's a racial dispute. Because you've got Jews who are converting to Christianity, and now through Paul's ministry, primarily, you've got Gentiles who are converting to Christianity. And the big debate that's arisen in the church is, do the Gentiles who convert to Christianity have to first convert to Judaism? That is to say, do they have to be circumcised? And do they have to submit themselves to Jewish law in order to become Christians and believers in the Lord Jesus? And it was a hotly contested issue. It was a big debate because you can understand that these Jewish converts who had grown up entrenched in Judaism from the Old Testament still kept most of the law. And they still saw that as valuable. They still saw value in circumcision and in law keeping. And yet the gospel is a gospel, as we've seen in the last five weeks, that salvation comes by grace through faith apart from any works. And so you've got Gentile converts who are coming to Christ and they're saying, circumcision, what? No, we don't need that. We need to believe on the Lord Jesus and repent and trust Christ. We don't need the ceremonies to be saved. And so there's a defense in the church. And there's a dispute. And so a council is held in Jerusalem. The apostles gather in AD 49 to resolve this matter. Paul comes back from the mission field to be at the council to report what's going on in the Gentile lands. How people are being saved and what's going on there. And it's in the midst of that conversation, it's in the midst of that dispute, that James steps up. And he emerges really as the primary voice in that council. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 19 and following, James says this, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled, and from blood. James shows his great wisdom. He says, no, no, we don't need to make them submit to the law. But we do need to challenge them not to intentionally offend their brothers who see things differently. Great wisdom from James. And he emerges as the leader, and his counsel wins the day. He affirms salvation by grace alone through faith alone, while at the same time calling on Gentile believers to not be inflammatory or offensive. Ten years later, James appears again in Acts chapter 21. Shortly before Paul's arrest and his death, he goes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 21, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us uh, to James, and all the elders were present. It's clear by Acts chapter 21 that James is the leader of the church, that he's the lead elder of the Christian church in Jerusalem. From there... All we know is that James continued to live his life in Jerusalem. He continued teaching. He continued shepherding the believers who were there through a bunch of persecution. He acquired the nickname Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees praying. You think of the nicknames people could give us. I can think of a lot of them people could give me. Camel Knees wouldn't be one of them. But that was James. He was a man of prayer. In A.D. 62, here's what you need to know about James. He was martyred for his faith. 
His faith in Christ led to his death. We don't know a whole lot about that from the Scriptures, but we do know some reports from the early church historians. Eusebius writes this, but after Paul, in consequence of his appeal to Caesar, had been sent to Rome by Festus, the Jews, being frustrated in their hope of entrapping him by the snares which they had laid for him, turned against James, the brother of the Lord. Leading him into their midst, they demanded of him that he should renounce faith in Christ in the presence of all the people. How about that? But contrary to the opinion of all, with a clear voice and with greater boldness than they had anticipated, he spoke out before the whole multitude and confessed that our Savior and Lord Jesus is the Son of God. But they were unable to bear longer the testimony of this man who on account of all the excellence of ascetic virtue and of piety which he exhibited in his life, was esteemed by all as the most just of men, and they consequently slew him. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us simply that James was taken out and stoned. Eusebius reports further in that same place from which that quote came, He tells us that James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and beaten with a club until he died. Not sure how it really played out. Maybe it was all of those things. doesn't really matter. What matters is to know that this man who started out as a skeptical brother to the Lord Jesus Christ ends up being a bloody martyr who dies in a horrific way, breathing his last breath saying, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That's enough to make me listen to him. That's enough to make me want to hear what he has to say. But that's not enough. You see in the first verse that he identifies himself as James, a servant, a doulos of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That first verse is even more miraculous when we understand, or even more impressive when we understand who James is and the many ways he could have introduced himself. I'm James the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to listen to me. I'm James, the lead elder at the church in Jerusalem. I'm James, eyewitness to the risen Jesus. All of those things were true. And he could have said any of those things. But when he writes, he chooses to say, I'm James. I'm just a slave of Jesus. I'm just a slave of Jesus. Like every true disciple of Jesus, James knows his place. It's not his physical relationship to Jesus that matters. It's his spiritual relationship to Jesus that matters. And in regards to that, Jesus is Lord and he's a servant. And he understands that. He's a humble man. What a remarkable man this James is. Wish we had more time to talk about him. We dare not miss the remarkable nature of who this person was as we study this letter. These are not simply sterile words from some ivory tower theologian. When we read James, we're reading the the words of a true man of God, a bold leader, a martyr for his faith. When we read the words of this short letter, we find that we're reading and getting insight into the heart of the person who probably knew Jesus the best. So it's no surprise to us that much of what James has to say tracks pretty closely with the things Jesus had to say. Remarkable man. And the book is also remarkable in a lot of different ways. It, we're told in verse 1 it's a letter that's, that's addressed to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. All you need to know about that is it's just a way of, of referring to Jews who've been scattered. After the persecution in Jerusalem broke out, after Stephen's martyrdom, the, the persecution heated up severely. James was able to endure it for a while until he was martyred at the end. But what happened almost immediately was the Jewish converts to Christianity were scattered out all over the place to avoid the persecution. They were, they were launched out from Jerusalem. And they were sent out with pretty much nothing. They left their homes, they left their families, they left their careers, and they were planted in other places as poor people, strangers in other places, dispersed all over the place. So when you see the 12 tribes in dispersion, that's to whom James is speaking. Now, wherever they went, they planted churches, 
And those churches saw Gentile converts. So likely, the recipients of this letter are primarily Jewish converts to Christianity with some Gentile converts mixed in to the bunch. And so this is a letter. It is not a systematic theology. It's a personal letter from a pastor of a church to his people who are scattered everywhere. When we try to look at the structure and the central theme and issues of the book of James, these again are highly debated issues. You can read about that on your own time. I'm working with about ten commentaries on James. And I bet if you read every single one of them, nearly every one of them gives a different outline for the book of James. And that's totally unhelpful, by the way, to somebody like me. Very unhelpful. But what it does tell me is that it's not crystal clear exactly how James had in mind he wanted this book organized. There are some who organize, they argue there's no structure at all. Luther said, yeah, said James, it looks like he uh, has been throwing things together chaotically. He doesn't see any structure at all. There are some who argue for a loose structure, and there are some who argue for a, a very robust structure. I, don't, I think you have to manufacture that to see it. When you look at the central theme of James, again, commentators are all over the board. Some say that this is a letter about spiritual wholeness. Some say it's a letter about social justice. Some say it's a letter primarily about worldliness. Some say it's primarily a letter about love of the world. But I think the best option is to see it this way. That James' primary concern in this book is really quite singular. His primary concern is differentiating between genuine living faith and fraudulent dead faith. I believe that we can make the case all throughout this book that that is James' primary concern. His primary concern is that the church in its dispersion has become diluted with fraudulent fake believers. And James understands the destructive danger of that. And so he writes because he doesn't want the church destroyed. And so he wants to differentiate between genuine living faith and fraudulent dead faith, between the real and the fake, the true and the false. He wants to expose the frauds, challenge them, convict them. And so the central question of James is then found in verse 14 of chapter 2. Look there with me. Or James asks his central question, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Ponder on that question, because that's James' central question. He gives his central answer a few verses later in verse 26 when he says this. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the central question and the central answer. And it is the way that James is going to differentiate between genuine, saving, living faith and fraudulent, fake, counterfeit faith. The primary root of this problem of counterfeiting James is going to identify is with love of the world. That there are people who pretend to be believers, but at their heart, they're really people who are more in love with the world than they are with the Lord. On the surface, they look real because they talk the right language and they do the right sort of outward things. But when you really put the spotlight on your life, on their lives, what you see is an abiding love for the world and the things of the world and not an abiding love for Christ and the things of Christ. So he's going to say things like in chapter 4, verse 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's going to say things like religion that is pure and that's undefiled. It's the kind of religion that cares about orphans and it cares about widows. And it's the kind of faith that keeps oneself unstained from the world. And beyond that, James is going to then give us some benchmarks. Some benchmarks by which we can measure ourselves. And so I think the way we need to approach the book is to see chapter 1 of James as sort of a composite of the main themes that James is going to give us, the main benchmarks. He's going to identify the majority, if not all of them, in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2 through 5, he's going to circle back and expand on each of them. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? 
So in chapter 1, we get introduced to them all. And then throughout the rest of the book, we get an expansion of these things. And I'm just going to give you the list. We have no time and really no need this morning to work through them because we're going to have plenty of time to deal with them uh, all along. But here they are. And this is going to be... Look, James is a practical book. It is a practical book. This is not a highly theological book. It is not a highly philosophical book. There's no debate about matters of deep theology. It is all about practical living, practical life. What does genuine faith look like in the life of a believer in the most practical of senses? And James is going to make the argument, I don't have to argue with you about your theology. I don't have to quiz you on your Bible knowledge. I don't have to debate matters of theological nuance with you. All I have to do, James is going to say, is watch your life and I'll know, I'll know if you belong to Christ or you don't. It's incredibly practical. Incredibly practical. James is... Jesus Christ is mentioned twice in James. The Gospel is mentioned... Sort of, uh, it's assumed rather than mentioned. The cross is never mentioned in James, ever. He never deals with justification, atonement, substitution, any of the things Paul deals with a lot. His concerns are practical, not theological. Here's the words for you. He is concerned with orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. Orthodoxy concerns itself with right belief. Orthopraxy concerns itself with right behavior. And James's whole argument is, if you're, if you're truly orthodox, that is, if you truly have the right belief, then you will also be orthoprax. You will live rightly as well. That's his whole thesis. Genuine living faith shows up in genuine behavior. And so James is going to invade our lives and lay bare our behavior. He's going to leave no room for us to nod our heads in agreement with theology and then live however we want. None. Look at this list. These are some of the things that he's going to tell us about in James. They're all introduced in in chapter 1. He's going to tell us that genuine faith, it shows itself through behavior which reflects belief. That's what I was just talking about. Perhaps that's the overarching thing and all the others fall under it. But he's going to say things like, your faith, if it's real, it's going to show up in how you handle trials and troubles and temptation. Genuine believers navigate those things one way. Frauds navigate them another. That's what he's going to say. He's going to say genuine faith shows up in how we treat other people, particularly the poor. Because that was a problem in James' day. That people were were giving deference to the wealthy and trampling the poor. And James is going to say, genuine believers don't do that kind of stuff. Their lives are not marked by partiality and prejudice and racism and preference for people who are wealthy over the poor. He's going to tell us that genuine faith shows up in the wisdom that we exhibit. He's going to say things like, there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom from above that comes from the Lord, and there's a wisdom from below that comes from the world. And your life is going to display one or the other. One of those two things is going to be the sort of the metric that guides you. One is a sign of genuine living faith. The other is a sign of counterfeit. He's going to say genuine faith shows up in how we speak and the words that come out of our mouth. James is going to actually come up into your life, and he's going to come up into my life, and he's going to put his ear up to our mouth, and he's going to say, I'm listening to all the things that come out of your mouth. I'm going to add up all your words. And that's going to tell me something about whether or not you're the real or the fake. It's going to tell me something about whether you're genuine or counterfeit. The words that you speak. Because he knows. We can come to a place like this and speak all the right words in this context. But if out there there are other words coming out of our mouth that contradict it, there's a problem. He's going to say finally that genuine faith shows itself up in how we use our wealth and our resources how we use our wealth and our resources. You're going to say things like when you get to the end of James, listen to this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming to you. That's kind of bold, isn't it? He has some things to say about wealth and he has some things to say about our resources and how we use them and how that's a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. Listen, my friends. I know that the moment is late and we're, we're done here. But I want to tell you this. This is going to be an important journey for us as a church. It really, really is going to be an important journey for us as a church. I believe 
This is the perfect study for this season and the life of this church. James is going to knock on our front door and he's going to kick it in. And he's going to come right up into our lives and he's going to rattle our cages a bit. And he's going to shake us up a bit. And he's going to shine spotlights into areas of our life where we'd rather not have spotlights shown. But I say it's the right message for the right time in our church because, listen, he's concerned about orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. And we're not a church that's particularly in need of someone examining our orthodoxy. If there's anything that we care about deeply and that we give a lot of attention to, it's orthodoxy and what we believe in our doctrine. I mean, my goodness, that's the strength of our congregation. We don't need further examination at the moment of that. But what James is going to bring to us is another side to that. He's going to say, listen, Grace on the Ashley. Listen, Grace on the Ashley. You claim to be a church of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a close look. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see if you're the real deal or you're not. Let's see if your life is going to validate that claim. From the outside looking in. And it's going to be practical. At times it's going to be painful, but in the end, it is going to be incredibly, I believe, productive for us all. We need that spotlight. There's nothing more important than knowing where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, that there is coming a day when every one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to hear one of two things. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Or, away from me, I never knew you. The most important thing we need to know about ourselves is which one of those things are we going to hear. And we need to know it before we get there. And James is going to help us down that road. This bloodied martyr for the faith is going to walk alongside us. He's going to put his arm around us. And he's going to shepherd us through this challenge. I hope you're ready for it. I'm excited about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is nothing more important than where we stand with You. You are everything and we are nothing. We read these warnings that You gave when You were walking and breathing and living among us. When You talked about wheat and weeds in a field. When You talked about what it's going to happen, how things are going to flesh out at the end when people stand before You. And there's a genuine anxiety that pops up in our heart when we come to the realization that there are going to be an awful lot of people in the end who think they're one thing but find out they're not. Because they've been deceived by a master counterfeiter whose design for their whole lives has been their destruction for eternity. And Lord, we we recognize that we are not immune to such things. The deception that will lead some to hear away from me, I never knew you, is a deception that legitimately could take root in our own hearts. And so we thank you for the gift of James, this godly man, this godly believer, this brother of yours, whose words will speak into our lives and help us to examine our faith that we might come out on the other end knowing that we belong to you. We pray as we start this journey that you would open our hearts up to receive what it is you have for us. Tear down any walls, Lord, of defense that we would want to put up to shield ourselves from the impact of your truth. May we go into this with open eyes and open hearts for your glory and for your honor and for our good. We pray in Christ's name.